Let's pray together. God, you, we adore you. You are our creator. You are our maker. You are the giver of life. And what a beautiful thing it is that in your eternal, sovereign, perfect nature, you saw fit to give us life and to make us and to make us in your image. And we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the opportunity to be here, to exist, and to have our eyes turned to you in praise and adoration. And we confess that our hearts and our minds are not set upon you as much as they should be, as much as we would want them to be. We confess that we don't think enough about your beauty or your majesty or your glory. But we give you thanks that you are a God who loves us still, that through faith and repentance you banish all of our sin. You don't judge us for our lack of faithfulness, but you simply call us to delight more and more in Jesus and love him more deeply. And I pray, God, it's the the deepest prayer of my heart that at Maricopa Springs we would love you more and more that we would adore you, that we would worship you, that we would treasure you, that our whole hearts, our whole minds, our whole self would be set upon you. And Lord, I ask that as we look at the book of Jude this morning, that you would speak by the power of your spirit through the words that I've prepared. Lord, lead us in truth and protect us from error. And I pray that the, the big ideas of Jude would be shown brightly in our church so that we might live according to what your word teaches. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I definitely bit off way more than I could chew this morning. Um, I told you a while back that we were going to go through the book of Jude, and then as I began studying it, I realized, oh my goodness, Uh, I had pages and pages of notes, and so I had to cut way more than I was able to put in here, and we're moving forward, so we're not going to stay more than one week in Jude, but hopefully I can at least kind of try to give you a summary as we navigate this entire book in one day. So hopefully you're already there. If you want to grab one of our Bibles, we have some on the back table, but we're actually going to read the whole letter of Jude, just like we read all of 2 Peter chapter 2. I realize that's a lot of scripture, but the reason is because these chapters are so in alignment. They sound in many ways almost the same. So let's read this together. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. 
Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. All right, well, I mentioned that uh, our scripture reading was very long this morning because we read all of 2 Peter chapter 2, and that's because Jude aligns with 2 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 3 as well. And we know that Jude copied Peter and not the other way around because if you look here in verse 18, he actually quotes 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. But this raises an interesting question, okay? Why would God put two passages of scripture in the Bible that are almost exactly the same? Why say the same thing twice? Well, two answers. First, because we are thick-headed people who are often hard of hearing, and we don't remember it the first time, or even the second, or the third, or the tenth time. And so it's necessary sometimes for God to repeat things in scripture. Actually, the Bible repeats itself a lot 
You have Deuteronomy, which is a second law, and you have four Gospels, which are essentially four different accounts of the life of Christ. And so the Bible repeats itself so that we don't miss the message, so that we don't read it and think, oh yeah, I got this, and then move on and it leaves our mind as if it's not important. We need to listen and pay attention. But the second reason why Jude and 2 Peter say so many similar things is that this is a particularly important topic for the church, one that we cannot neglect. And understand, every word of Scripture is of the utmost importance. I'm not suggesting to you that there are parts of Scripture that we're free to ignore, but there are some things that build on other things. There are some things that are foundational. There are some threads that if you were to pull on them, the entire garment would unravel. Some things that if you were to undermine them or you were to get them wrong, then the whole structure of our faith would come crumbling down. And what 2 Peter and Jude are dealing with is one of those things. And it concerns the purity of the gospel truth that is at the heart of the Christian faith. But let's begin in the beginning with verses 1 and 2. We find this opening address of the letter. This book is called Jude because the writer of the book identifies himself as Jude. And he says he's the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James. So let's talk about this character, James, for just a moment. There's actually three major Jameses in the Bible. There's James, the brother of John, who is the son of Zebedee who is one of the disciples. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, who is also a disciple. So right from the get-go, it's confusing. Twelve disciples, two of which are named James. I can't do the math. Is that like 20% or something like that? Okay, anyway. In Matthew chapter 10, you see both of their names listed, if you're interested in looking there. But the last James was actually not a disciple, This is James, the brother of Jesus, who's mentioned for us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. I am of the opinion that the James who is mentioned at the beginning of Jude is James, the brother of Jesus. That James became a prominent leader in the early church in the city of Jerusalem. And so this would give Jude a lot of credibility Hey, you all know that James, the boss man of the church over there in Jerusalem, that guy who's the brother of Jesus? Yeah, well, I'm Jude, his brother. This is not a nobody. This is the brother of James who everyone knows. But then, okay, if this is James, or I'm sorry, Jude, who is the brother of James, and that James was the brother of Jesus, why doesn't Jude just say, hey, guys, it's Jude, the brother of Jesus? Wouldn't that give him even more street cred as he writes this letter? Well, I believe the reason why Jude here does not claim to be the brother of Jesus is because he's already told us what his relationship to Jesus is. Right? Verse 1. This is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is the greatest relationship to God that any of us can have. This is the greatest endorsement that any of us can ever have. This is the greatest thing that can be said about any of us. The greatest, most profound, most wonderful thing that you can do in all of your life is serve Jesus. The greatest badge that you can wear 
is to be a slave of Christ. If you were the richest person on earth or the most intelligent person or the most famous or the most accomplished person, if you were the president of the United States or you were to build rocket ships to launch people into space or you were to conquer the earth or cure cancer or you were the most beautiful person who had ever lived and poetry regaled your beauty, still the greatest thing that could ever be said about you is that you are a servant of Jesus Christ. And so Jude emphasizes his role as a servant of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. I am a servant of Christ. Oh yeah, and I'm also that guy James. I'm his brother. And he emphasizes faithfully serving Jesus Christ at the very beginning of his letter because faithfulness to Jesus Christ and to the message of Christ is going to be the subject that occupies the theme of his letter. He addresses the letter then to those who are called, to those who are beloved. And that's the relationship that you have to Jesus Christ as well, isn't it? You are his servant because he has called you his beloved. And he repeats that word beloved again in verse 3, and he repeats it again towards the end of his letter, reminding us of the position that we have in relationship to God. How does God think about you? He actually treasures you as his beloved. I don't know about you, but I tend to reflect more about my sin in relationship with God, and there's a place for that. I should do that so that I might repent. But I should rejoice that I am called beloved. That's how God views me. So precious, so beloved in his eyes that even his own son was a worthy price to pay for my redemption. Not because I am worthy, but because that's how God sees me. And then he gives a sort of benediction in verse 2. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Man, what a great way to start this letter because these words are more than just a wish to Jude. Jude isn't saying, oh, and I wish that you'd have more mercy and more peace and more love. Jude knows that this is the fruit that his readers can expect in response to their faithfulness. In other words, a faithful servant of Jesus Christ can expect to reap from God the fruit of mercy and peace and love. God will multiply those things to them for their faithfulness because they are his beloved. Now after the introduction, we get the thesis statement, verses 3 through 4. Jude says that at first he wanted to write and discuss the nature of salvation. That would have been a worthy topic. Maybe one day we'll get to sit down with Jude and he'll be able to have that discussion with us. But instead, in this letter, he's going to call his readers to contend for the one faith that was delivered once for all by Jesus to the saints. And so the purpose of Jude's book is this, to contend for the faith. Jude is writing to exhort these people to contend for the faith. Now, the word contend means to exert intense effort on behalf of something. I would say it falls just short of violent fighting. 
although it does include a sort of athletic wrestling to it. Football teams don't just play a sport on the field. They contend to be champions. The other day, I came home from a quick errand, and uh, I pulled into the garage, and my youngest son came out to meet me, and I could tell he was, like, crying. So I asked him, like, hey, buddy, what's going on? And he burst into tears. And he was like, I was riding my motorbike around the neighborhood, and this man came out, and he yelled at me, and he said it's illegal, and that you need to send your dad down here. You're going to go to jail or something like this because I'm doing something that's so wrong. And he's just bawling, right? And I'd already looked into this. The little motorbikes they have are not against the law. I'd already spoken with a police officer about it. And so I was mad, right? Like some dude in my neighborhood made my son cry. So I was like, buddy, get in the car. We're going to go down there. We're going to contend with this neighbor. And so we did. We drove down and we found the neighbor. He pointed out the house and I rang the doorbell and Out came this man named Joe, and I can just tell you that uh, things ended well. It was a good conversation. It never came to physical blows. It wasn't necessary to go that route, but I was ready to use any means lawfully necessary to defend my son, right? I was ready to contend for him, and that's what a father should do, and this is what we as Christians are being commanded to do concerning our Christian faith. We are called to contend. We must exert intense effort to guard the truth, to remain faithful to Christ, to keep the commands of Scripture. We must hold fast to sound doctrine and not deny the importance of obedience. We must refuse to cave to the pressure of those who would twist the faith. I would go so far as to say that as believers here at Maricopa Springs, we need to go to the point of beating back those people who would corrupt the gospel. We need to refuse to tolerate them. We must force them out of our churches, drive them to understand the true knowledge of Christianity, which is contrary to what they claim when they proclaim a false gospel. I'm getting ahead of myself. I haven't yet uh, called your attention to verse 4. Verse 3 says we need to contend or fight for the faith. Now verse 4 tells us why. The reason is because certain people have crept in. Ungodly people. Did you hear how often that word came up as we read Jude? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. And these people, using the church and claiming Christianity, have crept in to teach a different gospel. They sneak in, which means that at first sight they might appear to be one of us. They might have some of the same trappings. They might use even some of the same language. But as we watch what they do and we hear what they say, it begins to become clear. These are not faithful servants of Jesus Christ. They come not to proclaim a message that would cause our eyes to look to him, but to look away from him. And in verse 4, Jude gives us two parts of their false gospel. First, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And then second, they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now once again, I say this all the time, here we are looking at a book that was written 2,000 years ago, and the Spirit of God knew exactly what we would need to hear 
in the city of Maricopa in the year 2023 in the nation of America. We are still in the same battle, contending for the same faith, delivered once for all to the saints against this same false gospel. So let's look at both of these aspects together because the rest of Jude really just paints a picture of what a sensual faith looks like, a sensual false gospel, and also what it means to deny Jesus as master and Lord. And Jude rebukes these people for this. First, those who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. This remains a huge problem in the church today. It sounds something like this. Since we are saved by grace and not by works, it really doesn't matter what we do. God's grace is big. It covers your sin. So live however you want. God is a God of love. God accepts sinners and welcomes them. Love is lenient and indulgent and permissive. And because God is love, then those things are acceptable in the church. Go do whatever you want. Go live how you would like. And you'll find that when you come to God, His love will be there. His grace will cover your sins. And so it doesn't matter. This is a lie still present in the church. It is a lie that since God has given us grace and love, His grace and love means that we're free to go about doing whatever we want and grace will cover sin. And I would say this is the heresy of license. Maybe you've heard me say this before, license. Essentially, the heresy of freedom. These, are, these people who proclaim this, they are libertine. They reject the morality of Christ. They do not seek to walk in righteousness. They say great things about grace, but they don't mean what grace means. They believe you can do whatever you want, still call yourself a Christian, and because you have grace, God will then just still welcome you and embrace you. These are people who say obedience, that's legalism. Obedience is self-righteousness. What's wrong with you in your holier-than-thou attitude when you talk about things like obedience? No, no, we talk about grace. And they pervert the gospel. Because the gospel teaches us that true grace, biblical grace, it actually cures you of your sin. Like, have you ever been told that? Not that grace will just cover your sin, but grace actually can cure you of your sin. Grace never leads you into sin. Grace leads you away from sin into the embrace of God who is holy and righteous and good. It is God's grace in you that produces the righteousness that a Christian has. Grace changes you. And this is the truth that we must contend for. Not only that grace forgives you, but that grace is transformative. Yes, the gospel is God will accept you as you are, you miserable wretch. But because he loves you and pours his grace out into your life, he will not leave you a miserable wretch. He will change you. And Jude says this false gospel peddled by these heretics, it takes grace 
and it turns it into sensuality. Sensuality is another word for pleasure. Think Pinocchio, Pleasure Island. It has to do with indulging the senses. Seeking to be, to feel pleasure in, in the body through things that you feel or taste or hear or see. Look down at verse 10 where we're told that these people are destroyed because they operate like unreasoning animals operating only by instinct. And Peter said something similar in chapter 2. Now I want you to think hard with me about this. The modern world, the world that we live in, has argued quite successfully that you and I are nothing more than sophisticated animals. Now hopefully you understand that the Christian worldview rejects this. Man is a creature, yes, and therefore we do have some instinctual needs and desires as a creature, that's true. And in this broken world, those desires and those needs have become disordered because our world is held captive by sin and we are corrupted in our nature by sin as well. But the modern world takes that idea and says, you're nothing more than an animal. There's nothing that you can do about it. And so let us just be free. Let us embrace all of those deepest, darkest instincts that we have with no regard as to what might be morally good or right or true. And although we as a Christian reject this, the cultural damage is done isn't it? The consequence is that in modern discourse, all personal responsibility has been removed. Any idea that you might be something better than you are, that's actually oppressive and mean. Your problem is you don't just accept and embrace yourself for who you are. The motto of our age is do whatever feels good. There might be a little parenthesis that says as long as you don't hurt anybody else, but, uh, you know, do whatever feels good. That is sensuality. That is animal instinct. It is absolutely contrary to the gospel. Have you ever noticed that humans don't correct or rebuke animals for acting like animals? Because animals are stupid. If you walk out of your house one morning and you find a dead rabbit torn to pieces in your front yard and you know it's that coyote that lives in your neighborhood. You don't track down the coyote and be like, hey, let's sit down over a cup of coffee. Let me explain to you why, you know, this vicious, violent behavior of tearing your prey apart is really kind of gruesome and inappropriate. That's just what coyotes do. It's an unreasoning animal. If you have a guest over and your dog tries to hump their leg, you don't say to the dog, whoa, 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 hold on. We need to have a conversation about what it means to be pious when company is over. Gobbling up food and mating indiscriminately are animalistic behaviors. They are instinctual. But tragically, man has bought the lie that he's nothing more than instinct. These very same behaviors are actually appropriate for man. That's the lie. Mankind is merely an evolved animal 
the beauty is we have almost unlimited power to achieve all of our instinctual animalistic desires. How terrifying is that? Uh, I remember an awful old song that used to play on the radio when I was in school. And it said something about how we're mammals and so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. That is the anthem of our age, an anthem dripping with sensuality, carnal, hedonistic, animal greed. And the result is that man lives only according to his appetites, his sexual desires, his laziness, his self-worth, his sense of self-being. These are the only things that are important. His psychological frame of mind. His sense of pleasure and happiness. All of that should just be indulged because we're nothing more than animals. There's no reason to do otherwise. We can't do anything about it. And what Jude is saying here in his letter is there are people trying to proclaim that message as the gospel. And they are present in churches. And that is not the gospel. And we must not permit people to pervert the gospel of grace into sensuality. You're forgiven. Go live however you want. This kind of worldliness that embraces ungodly passions is the absolute opposite of the gospel. And if grace were merely the forgiveness of sins, then maybe we could go about living our fantasies and our pleasures however we want. But true grace, biblical grace, the kind of grace that Jesus came to offer, is not merely the forgiveness of sin. It is a gospel of freedom from sin as your master. Go back and read 2 Peter chapter 2. He talks about being enslaved to sin. The gospel is the radical message that you have been made into a new creature. Not an animalistic one, but one that reflects the righteousness of Christ. True grace finds joy and life in obedience to the things of God. Operating in the power of the Spirit, bearing fruit like self-control. Grace is the power of God at work in us to deny those animal instincts and instead be like God himself. God has a will and he has made us creatures who reflect him. We have a will. And by grace, we can bring our will into alignment with his will. And sadly, in some churches, we find a message being taught where people, you can't escape what you are. And thank God, because he's got grace. So just embrace who you are. But the grace of Jesus says, you're free, so leave that all behind. And this connects to the second heresy that often creeps into the church. We see it in those who deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, as Jude says in verse 4. Far too many people who call themselves Christians have embraced this false gospel as well. They believe that Jesus will be their Savior even if they refuse to let him be their master. And isn't it interesting that Jude doesn't say that Jesus is our Savior and Lord? He says our master and Lord. And I want to be very clear on this point because I seem to encounter this with some frequency. 
I, I wouldn't necessarily say in our church. I would just say as I interact with people and they're like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And then we see the fruit of just absolute disobedience. If you deny Jesus as your master, you are not a Christian. There is no biblical category for somebody who is a Christian and is saved by Jesus and is the kingdom of God who says, no, Jesus, I will not do what you command me as master. Now, there may be moments in our life where we fail and we're guilty of that and we repent. But if Jesus is not your master, then you are not a Christian. And I want you to understand, this is not a threat. I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to like get up here and be like, oh. I'm only telling you that if you think you can have Jesus as your Savior without understanding that you're going to find no kinder, no wiser master to follow in the footsteps of, then you've not met Jesus. If you want an ethic for your life, Jesus offers you one, and it's the best. But if you don't follow that way, then you don't actually trust the one who you claim has saved you. And if you listen as people talk about Christianity, sometimes you'll hear a message that sounds like this. Jesus came to give himself to you. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches Jesus came so that you would give yourself to him. That's the gospel. That even though you are a wretch, you can give yourself to Jesus and he will change you and he will save you and he will lead you and he will love you and he will protect you. And so again, I tell you, as Jude himself would tell you, if Jesus is not your master, you're not a Christian. And I mean by that, if you're not laboring at least to love him and follow him and obey him and chase him, if, if it's not at least the desire of your heart to be like this man who loves you and has saved you, then you do not trust him. And it's interesting that Jude's message is for the church, my friends. You might be sitting there thinking, Grady, like, this is the church. We know this. Jude's message is for the church. Jude warned us about ungodly people who would creep into churches and deny the lordship of Jesus. And in verse 8, he tells us these people reject authority. And in verse 6, he gives us this stunning example of angels who refused to obey God and fell into sin. They denied that Jesus was master, and the result is they wait in chains of gloomy darkness for the judgment. And then in verse 14, verses 14 and 15, Jude reminds us of the authority which Jesus actually has. The authority to execute judgment on the ungodly people who show their ungodliness in word and deed, who deny him as master. That is the authority that Christ has. So these are false gospels. These are the false gospels about which Jude is deeply concerned. The false gospels against which we must contend. Number one is just a review that grace means you're forgiven of your sins, so do whatever you want. It's all good. Whatever feels good, grace will cover that. Now, grace will cover it, but it will also make you despise it. Number two, Jesus can be your savior even if you deny him as master. Those are false gospels. 
Now, once we analyze the language Jude uses in verses 5 through 16, and this is where I'm like, I just don't have time. I want to go like word by word through this with you. But we get a really clear picture of what we should do with people like this when they are exposed. Like, there's another thread of Christianity right now that says, well, like, you know, yeah, we don't want heretics and false gospels in the church, but like, you know, we need to treat them with kid gloves. Like, we should still be really nice to these people. Look at the language Jude uses, words like destroy and ungodly and ungodly and ungodly. The gloom of utter darkness and blasphemy. Verse 11 says, woe to them who lead people astray with a gospel like this. We don't tolerate people like this. We contend with them. We tolerate them outside of the church because they're ignorant and they don't follow Jesus. But inside the church... No, in here, all the glory goes to Christ. And we do not tolerate people like this. We refuse their gospel. We reject their message. As they deny Christ, we deny them. And and what we must do is make our holiness so utterly uncomfortable for them that in their sin and their disobedience, they hate us. And they leave because they find being with the people of God, being with such godly people is intolerable. And I believe that's actually the remedy that Jude offers. Look at verses 20 to 23. He doesn't anywhere in this letter say, you know, get a big stick and chase these people out. What he says is that we must build up the church in the true faith, grounded in the message of the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. We must pray and walk in the Holy Spirit We must keep ourselves in the transformational love of God. We must set the desire of our own hearts so fully upon the joy of our eternal inheritance rather than the fleeting pleasures of the animal instinct. We must show mercy to those who are weak and help those who are in danger. And at the end of verse 23, we need to hate the filth of sin so much that we refuse to wear it. When those people are saying, put this on, put this sin on, God still loves you, we're like, no, that's disgusting. I want nothing to do with it. And I can tell you from experience that when a church aligns itself with godliness like this, this works to send these false teachers who promote sensuality and reject Jesus as master, it sends them fleeing. When the church is unrelentingly faithful to Jesus, the ungodly vermin who creep in to pollute the message, they don't want to be here. They choose to leave because they cannot stand the blinding light of God's holiness present in God's people, shining among the church. And so Jude's solution is not to start an inquisition. Jude's solution is not to try and even uncover these people, that you might purge them. No, instead, his solution is simply contend for the faith. Stand firm in the truth. Pray and build up the church in the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. Walk in grace that is transformative. Honor Jesus as Master. And the enemies of the church who lurk in the church, they're going to find their own way out. 
Because the discomfort of trying to hide among those who hate the stench and stain of sin is too much work. It's deeply uncomfortable. And although Jude writes with this command to contend for the faith, he warns with great passion about the danger we we face. Notice that he does not end on a note that might make us feel overwhelmed. He doesn't end on a note that gives us anxiety. He doesn't leave us thinking about how much effort it's going to take for us to do this. No, he ends with a glorious reminder about the faithfulness and the power of God. A big God. In verses 24 through 25, we find praise and adoration to God alone. God who is powerful to keep his church pure and his people blameless. Notice that these people, although they've been at work for 2,000 years, they have not succeeded. Because here stands the church, still faithful to Christ. Because God is faithful. Jude ends with praise to God who has all the glory and all the majesty and all the dominion and all the authority from eternity past to right now and endlessly into eternity. Praise to Jesus who said he would build his church. Jude ends with a reminder that God himself is committed to this work and so you cannot fail. We cannot fail. So let us contend for the faith here at Maricopa Springs, the the realm where we have some power and influence. Let us contend for the faith even as we rest in the truth that Jesus declared God's victorious work finished on the cross. Let us remember the warnings of Scripture about the last days even as we rejoice in the mercy and the peace and the love that is right now being multiplied to us. Let us hold fast to the gospel of grace and be faithful to Jesus, our master, even as we remember that eternal life is already ours through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, would you do this work? And would it lead us to humility, not pride or self-righteousness? Because this is your work. The work of the truth, the work of faithfulness, that's your work. You accomplish it in your people. And the work of grace that leads us in righteousness, that's also your work. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to these things with great humility, trusting ourselves over to you and being bold to contend for the faith. Lord, even as we show incredible amounts of mercy to a world that is far from you and destined for destruction, Lord, even as we call those people to repentance, I pray that we would be bold to rebuke those proclaiming a false gospel who bear the name of Christ. And Lord, as we do this, I I ask that we would see great fruit in your church. Mercy and peace and love multiplied to us. In Christ's name, amen.